say I'm understudy, might say I'm over the top, but there's like no free water, but soda pop is overstocked. They say amazing grace. So this episode is um, going to be segments of the live presentation. It was two hours of content. I'm going to share with you um, one of the interviews that I conducted, and I'll share the other inter- interview with you in another episode. Felt like the culmination of all of the work that I've been doing over the past few years in this area of diversity and inclusion, and was one of those times when I was standing in the center of something that I had manifested, and I was like, well, holy cow, look at that. And I like the view from here. And it felt like I was living my purpose. So I was the keynote speaker at Human Resources Association of the Midlands in Omaha. And I presented two hours of content on diversity and inclusion and race, culture, and the culture of race and navigating difficult conversations about race. And I was it, right? So like the people who attended, there was about 200 people there. They came based on the description of what I had to offer. The response was really strong and positive. It really energized me and made me realize that I want to travel more with Tanya's Take Live, bring the message to more people. And one of the things that was really cool for me is that as far as Firing on all cylinders, you know, being able to use all of my skills. So as an actor, as an improviser, as a writer, as a content maker, as a teacher, as a facilitator, like to find an opportunity where I can employ all of those skills and then create something that was entertaining and thought provoking and raw and truthful. You know, it's like, yes, I'm patting myself on the back, but mostly um. I'm just honoring the fact that I arrived in that moment and I'm very aware of how everything I've done has loaned itself to this. And that, you know, like I still pursue acting full time and I've had a good year um, doing some film and television and commercial work. And um, I haven't been doing as much theater. You know, that's been an area where I'm like, shoot, when am I going to do another play, you know? But being able to do something like this gives me that live performance experience. And I'm also um, providing a service. So it's just like thumbs up as far as being able to use the skills that I have in a way that I can do good. Steven Gutierrez is the person who brought me there along with the board he is a part of. So he's on the board of what they call HRAM. And they were brainstorming one day and Stephen told me that he happened to be on his phone while they were brainstorming and he came across my Tanya's Take newsletter and it all just sort of synced up. I've known Stephen forever. As long as I've known Stephen, I included him on my mailing list for this newsletter. And, uh, you know, that's how we had really been in touch other than Facebook. But I just kept doing what I was doing and the timing synced up. And when he was in need, he thought to give me a call. So uh, and when he was like, do you think you could come up with something? You know, I had had experience doing some live shows with Ray Spade and 
um, feel very comfortable in that context. But, you know, I just said, yes, yes, I can. And hey, yes, I did. How about that? So whatever inspiration that might give you in the sense of like, just keep chugging away at whatever it is you're doing, creating, manifesting, and you don't know whose eyes and ears are on it. And uh, you may not feel like that direct result every day that you're doing it, but I have found that it's really paying off in ways that sometimes are surprising. Here it is. Tanya's Take Live at Human Resources Association of the Midlands Diversity and Inclusion Luncheon. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much to all the sponsors who have brought me here. Thank you so much for being here and wanting to be a part of the conversation. My name is Tanya Richard, and my podcast is called Tanya's Take, Race, Culture, and the Culture of Race. And sometimes I travel with the podcast, like I'm doing here today, and I do a live version of it. So when I think of culture of race, I am talking about this country and the way we talk about race, what we think about race, how we behave because of race, right? And on the podcast, what I'm doing is asking all of us to be self-reflective on this. And I attempt to be as transparent and self-reflective on the podcast. And in addition to that, I try to foster rigorous, transparent, truthful, intra and interracial conversations about race, which will enable all of us, the people I'm speaking to, the listeners, to consider the ways that we can dismantle systems in our culture that uphold some and not others. So that's a little bit about Tanya's take. It's a fairly easy order, right? <laughs> no big whoop. Uh, so speaking of self-reflection, one of the great things about today is we're going to get to speak with folks who are actually a part of your community and get their personal perspective on race. And the first person who has graciously volunteered to be a part of this conversation. Yay! You know, it does take a lot of courage, right, to come in front of your peers and share your personal perspective. I want to make sure that the mic picks you up. Hey. Hey. <laughs> On the podcast, I have a segment called, Hey, girl, hey. <laughs> Uh, where I talk to fabulous black women. So this is actually an honorary, hey girl, hey! <laughs> and uh, Terry, first and foremost, I have to call attention to something I think that is crucial to this conversation. And that is the fact that you have fabulous hair. <laughs> so do you. I just really wanted to put that out in the room. <laughs> that out in space. Um, and we'll have to talk about, you know, hair care and <laughs> the full arc of hair care. Pardon? My table is like volunteer shelter. <laughs> right? Let's just love on Terry for a second, shall we? All right, so Terry, we have something in common, and that is that we both uh, went to all white high schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were the onlys 
in all white high schools. Imagine that. Yeah. So uh, what I wanted to ask you was about something. So we had a pre-call where we kind of got to know each other a little bit so I could really dive into the middle of this conversation. And um, I wanted to ask you if you would please share with the group the story you told me about, and I believe it was in high school when this happened, uh, the teacher who wanted to try a little experiment with you and your classmates. Can you share that story? Yes. So, um, so first of all, my father was in the military for 30 years, so he traveled everywhere. So I was a military brat. And um, one of our tour of duty, we ended up in Wisconsin for three years. So I was there during my high school years. So I was in a classroom, and one of the experiments, and I don't know why we were doing this experiment. I don't even remember that. But all I remember was that the teacher had us get like in a circle, and we had to close our eyes, and we were supposed to use our senses. And so we were told to touch the person next to us, touch their hair. And so everybody was touching hair, and all of a sudden there was like a scream <laughs> next to me because the person who touched my hair like freaked out. And so, and I just really, that's the only thing I remember about that whole experiment. And I was so embarrassed because I'm like, okay, I'm the only black person with pinky, nappy hair, and they were like freaking out. And so. Yes. So. Can we focus a little bit on how that felt? So you said you were embarrassed. Yeah. And what was your impulse after that? What did you do with that embarrassment? Um, honestly, I just, the only thing I remember was that, okay, so I'm not really 100% accepted. I, I felt like on the surface I was kind of accepted because I was in sports and I was athletic and um, I had broken some records and tracks, so I felt from that standpoint I was accepted, but I think that just confirmed for me that I really wasn't accepted and I really was different than everyone else in the classroom and the school. And something about the core of your being. So the reason I wanted to bring up that story is because I wondered if you could relate and had a similar experience that I had, which was what I like to call the slavery chapter. And that is the, oh, one day in school when slavery is discussed. Now imagine that experience when you're the only black kid. And imagine that experience when the other kids are so uncomfortable acting as if they're talking about you because you're a slave. Did you have that? Um, okay, so a another story similar to that. So when we moved from Wisconsin, we, um, when I graduated, I ended up going, my parents sent me to a Bible school in California, in Santa Cruz, and it was a really small school, and it was all white. And I was in the classroom, and I remember we were talking about the story of Cain and Abel, mm -hmm. and, and I apologize, because I'm not like, really religious, so if I get my story mixed up. But there was a story about Cain and Abel and how the two brothers, one of the brothers um, killed the other brother, yes. and then one of the brother who survived had a mark. In the yes. Bible, it tells the other brother was marked. And so the Bible never said what the mark was, but I remember distinctly being in the classroom with all white people, and they were talking about what was the mark, and 
Even though it was never said what the mark was, several people in the classroom said it was being black. And once again, I felt totally like, okay, I'm not accepted. I, I don't feel apart. I don't feel inclusive. And so I only lasted there two years and I dropped out because I was like, I, I, can't, I can't deal with this. This is just not what I want to do anymore. So. And so I so appreciate you sharing that. And it, and it brings up two sort of tiers of, of some of the things I wanted to focus on. Number one, this experience of othering when that's not the intention. And particularly in education, that will happen often. So I had an experience with a religion teacher in grades in high school who every time she said a black person's name, she would kind of gesture towards me like, well, you know them. <laughs> so she'd be like, you know, um, uh, 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 what's her name? Dawn. Underground Railroad. Thank you. <laughs> I've got a lot of experience in this area. Um, uh, so she'd be like, Harriet Tubman. <laughs> right? But that gesture was her othering of me, right? Thinking she's being inclusive of me. Because, you know, all black people know each other, even if they're dead. <laughs> Right? And so that profound feeling of those, those slights and microaggressions, and what I now sort of would want to ask you to do is start to think about, are there things that I'm saying or doing or ways that I behave where I might be doing that with people of color who I work with, um, who I think I'm being inclusive of? But what are we talking about? How are we talking about it? What's the subtext to what we're saying, right? And then the other thing I, I noticed that you said was the idea that you didn't last, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that this affects our bottom line, right? We lose talent. We lose multiple perspectives if we're not hyper-vigilant, hyper-aware of how we may not be overtly othering someone, but subtly othering someone, yeah? Uh, I wanted, we talked a little bit about, how are we doing on time, Steve? All right, Stephen's helping me stay on track with um, our time for these. Um, so uh, you talked a little bit about your dad and sort of the messaging that he sent um, to you as children um, about being black. And I was curious about your mother and what was some of the messaging that you received from her? Um, so I always tell Antonia the story about when we were growing up. My father is from um, uh, New Orleans. And my mother's from Knoxville, Tennessee. And they met in college. They both went to Clark College, which is now Clark University. Um, my father grew up, I don't want to say like in the hood, but well, they, they both blew up, grew up in black neighborhoods. But my father grew up more kind of in an urban situation than my mother did. And my dad, when we came along, there was five of us siblings. He kind of grew up with this idea that because he was black, he had to be better than, he had to be smarter and better. He went into the military, he was 30 years, and he really excelled at that, but he expected the same thing from the kids. And so as a part of that, he didn't really like us. He associated, he, he was trying to kind of protect us, and he didn't like it when we hung out with other black kids. We didn't go to black churches, we didn't go to um, 
we didn't live in a black neighborhood. We were always just kind of separate. And in his mind, it was a way of, I need to make sure they have different experiences so that they can succeed in life. But it was really, and he never just came out and blatantly told us this, but as I got older, I started to recognize this. And whenever I would hang out, being in the military, you, you were around so many different people and you live so many different places. So we had a lot of diverse experiences, but when I would hang out with um, other black kids, he was very derogatory about it. And he kind of ended up driving me towards more being blackness and me becoming more involved in, in things that were black. And he's totally changed his perspective now. He's 88 now and it's a different world, but it was just interesting. And, and another thing that really stood out to me, I remember one time, because I'm really fair-skinned, and so I would sometimes get out in the sun because I wanted to get blacker. And um, he, he just really, he got upset with me because I was doing that. And he never said why and never really told us why he felt this way. But as I got older, I, I understood it. I, I didn't agree with it, but I understood it. So it was really an interesting experience with him keeping us segregated from other people like ourselves. I think it's so interesting because it's a perfect example of internalized racism in the sense that her father is not the bad guy in this story, right? And there isn't so much a bad guy as much as there is a system that would force a person to internalize the external racism that they're experiencing and think that the only way to protect their children is asking them not to be their full selves. And so in this conversation we're in now, we have to create situations where people don't get the message that they feel they need to suppress who they are in order to be included, but that they can express who they are into, in order to be included. And just so, and with that, did your mom tend to just sort of silently yeah. support so, that? Yes, so my mom was, yeah, she, it was always my dad. Yeah. I think if it wasn't for my dad, my mom would be more open because she grew up in a black church yes. and her grandparents. The only time I got to experience when I was growing up was going and being with my grandparents mm -hmm. and going to their church. But I think, you know, that was back in the day where the, he, he was a sole su uh, supporter financially and, you know, the wife kind of just did what the, the, the husband expected of her. So she just never really... Right, so you didn't necessarily get a counter narrative yeah, there. Exactly. Right. But I do also think like done work parents because it ended up pushing you closer to it and yeah. enabling you to find yourself yes. even probably in a stronger way, right? Yes. And so finally, and we'll have to wrap up, I could talk to you forever, and of course, like I said, we still need to have a hair consultation. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, so you talked a little bit about your fearlessness, and I just wondered, um, you know, in being athletic, and it's just sort of your experiences have gotten you to a place where you're relatively fearless. Can you sort of pinpoint what it is about that experience, sort of moving around a lot, being um, othered and the only throughout your life, yeah. that has brought you to this sense of fearlessness? Yeah, so I think, you know, even though it may seem like it was a bad experience, it, it ended up being a good experience for me because it made me who the person I am now. And I tended to be, I was the oldest of our siblings and I was always the radical. So I always, if my dad said don't do this, I would do it anyhow. But it, it kind of just 
made me, the, the great thing about 30 years being in the military, I had exposure to so many different type of cultures and opportunities. And so today, I, I'm pretty adventurous. I like doing adventurous things. I like doing things that people think, typically black people don't do that. Like black people don't swim. <laughs> I, I, I can swim and I love swimming and I don't have a problem with getting my hair messed up. But it's just things like that. It's just things that it's kind of drives me towards doing things that if somebody says, let's go do this and I don't think it's going to kill me, then I'll, I'll go and do it. So That's pretty good. You know, I have to say, um, I so appreciate what you said just in terms of um, things like, you know, the stereotype that black people don't swim. And I just always like to remind folks, like, some of those stereotypes, their reasons for, harken back to slavery, right? So it's like the, the shorthand for this stereotype around whether pe black people like to swim or not comes from the DNA and the post-traumatic stress of coming over here kidnapped on ships. Did I just bring the room down? But you know what I mean? Like, and this is the ugly we have to confront. Black people, this stereotype that black people don't swim isn't just because, like, well, black people don't care about teaching how their children to swim. Or black, there is post-traumatic stress. There is stuff written about this stuff, right? That that is still in our hearts and minds this much further along. But again, it's on us to break that. We don't have to adhere or be conditioned to that or repeat it. All right, so I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. And please, let's give it a She grand. I also, um, on the last episode of my podcast, I also brought up the fact that, like, when in doubt, any old patriotic song or nursery rhyme is racist. <laughs> it has a racist origin, it just does. Um, like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tiger by the tail. Mm -mm, no, no, yeah. We are entrenched in it, folks, even in the things that we feed our children unaware, right? So, how's everybody doing? Good, good, good. Um, I wanted to do something that is crucial to these conversations, and that is encourage you all to breathe. She's like, what? To breathe, right? So, because in this next segment, we're going to be talking a little bit about messaging, how to handle, um, almost some, to some degree on the PR level, when you're languaging after perhaps you've had perhaps a public gaffe, right? We're going to uh, talk a little bit about being present in conversations, even once we get into the discomfort zone of those conversations. And one of the crucial elements to that is remembering to breathe. Because one of the first things we do when we get scared or threatened or feel uncomfortable is we actually stop breathing. And once we stop breathing, we're not at our full capacity. We're not at our full capacity to hear. We're not at our full capacity to be present, right? And it's physiological. But because it's physiological, we can uh, do things to kick us back into that present state. And one of the simplest things we can do is breathe. Um, bless you. No, but these are deep cleansing breaths. 
right? Not surface breathing, which keeps us alive, <laughs> but deep cleansing breaths. So let's all do one, shall we? I'm going to model it for you. Um, it looks like this. Let's all do one, shall we? Count of three. One, two, three. When you're uncomfortable, taking that moment and modeling that for others. Like, how cool would it be if you were being led by somebody when stuff starts to get kind of tense or uncomfortable? Was just like, hold on a second. What was that, Harry? Right? <laughs> Why is it always Harry? <laughs> Know a Harry? Is there a Harry in the room? No. I'm like, Harry, come on down. Um, but uh, again, that idea of how, what do we model for the people that we're leading? Um, and it doesn't have to be these big ideas all the time. Sometimes it could be as simple as not being reactive and creating that little stopgap that comes from a simple breath. Right? Let's do one more, shall we? One, two, three. All right, so we are now going to, I heard I, I amplified doubly. I'm going to walk around my life with two microphones because it's really, I feel very powerful. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, this next segment uh, is another incident that happened in the cultural zeitgeist that you might recognize and or recall. And um, it's not the actual event, it's the sort of um, aftermath. It's a different version of the apology tour. Um, better handled in some areas, worse handled in others. So I'm talking about the incident that happened at Starbucks last year, I think it was like early last year, where the two black men were arrested because the manager called the police on them because they didn't immediately come into the store and buy something, they were waiting for their food, right? And because of that, Starbucks responded by doing implicit bias training, shutting down all, a bunch of their stores, trying to handle it in the public eye best they could. So um, Howard Schultz being the lead on all of that. Howard Schultz's name may be familiar with you because of that, or it may be familiar with you because there's rumor that he may be one of our presidential candidates. He is not announced, correct? He is not announced. Um, but he's been making these appearances and doing these town halls, public appearances, um, because I think he's sort of in real time processing whether he wants to announce that he's going to run for president. And that's what we're going to go ahead and explore and break down. I'm going to stop and start, and this is the beginning. I'd like to take a moment to talk about um, something in your career leading Starbucks that you call a blow to our soul. And that is the racial profiling and the arrest of two black men mm -hmm. recently at a Philadelphia Starbucks. So on that point, Democratic voter uh, Orgina Kinnear owns the Caffeine Coffee Cafe here in Houston. Yes. And you have Hello. a question on this issue. Last year, an acute situation developed at Starbucks store in Pennsylvania. Our nation was divided and thoughts of racial profiling soared. An unconscious bias training session was implemented and many moved on. Do you believe the training was effective? Uh, the situation in Philadelphia that occurred, I don't know if, how many people know the exact story, and I'll try and be brief. Two African-American gentlemen walked into the store. They asked to use the bathroom. 
Uh, they were asked to buy something. They didn't. Something happened verbally between them and the manager. The okay. So I just want to, so again, he is sort of the voice for the organization. And there's just a small kind of uh, point I want to make here, which is, so there was some discussion when all of this happened about whether or not Starbucks has a no-buy policy, which means that they welcome people into the store whether they buy something or not, right? And so in this case, he makes the point that um, these gentlemen didn't buy anything. And in a moment, he's going to say, therefore, the manager called the police. He does not make clear whether she was following policy or whether she was going against policy, which is you don't have to buy anything. The reason why that's important is the subtle subtext to that is, therefore, the men did something wrong. And again, in this sort of phase of the game, we're supposed to fully embrace the fact that these gentlemen who were racially profiled did not do something wrong. So that's how important messaging is. Something as small as that, not even being aware that what you're sort of saying subtextually is she actually did something that she was supposed to do, right? And again, that was part of the conversation in the ensuing weeks. Do they have a no-buy policy or not? And in this training that they're going to do, they're going to make this clear to their employees. So you should then make it clear to the public. Decided to call 911. The men were arrested, handcuffed. Thank God they didn't resist. And they were... Right? And this guy is actually trying to deliver the positive message of we made a mistake. We're trying to fix it. But what is implicit in what he is saying is, thank God they didn't protest. Because if they did, what would have happened? What do we all know? And what the one other subtle thing that implies is it was on them not to protest. And that's the difference. Someone may not hear that as a woman of color. That's what I hear. Uh, and it created a tr tremendous problem for the company. Uh, really? <laughs> a problem for the company? No. Who was the problem? Who did it create a problem for? The men who went to jail for entering a Starbucks. Uh, we immediately went to Philadelphia. We met with the two gentlemen. We met with clergy. We met with the DA. But most importantly, we realized that we had a problem. And Good. And so this is some of the positive of what he does. He uh, acknowledges that this was serious and that they took it seriously. In this case, it's fair, I think, to call in the clergy, but I don't know why people keep thinking religion's gonna fix racism. <laughs> Come on, Nick. But oh well, he's trying. And as a result of that, we decided that we should close every store at Starbucks at great expense, not for a PR stunt, not for marketing, but to train 180,000 people. And then we got experts who could help us do it. Cheryl Eiffel. They got experts. Thank you. If you're taking it seriously, then bring in people who seriously can address the issue. Yeah? This is not stuff that can be handled internally and hope for the best. Right? And so that was very smart, very wise. 
to recognize experts needed to bring, be brought into this. NAACP, Brian Stevenson, Common, Melody Hobson, a whole host of people who could help us with the curriculum. It was four hours of training, which is not something that's going to change people's view. And Woo! Good job, Howard. He knows four hours isn't enough. So he's acknowledging that. And we're training everyone that comes into Starbucks because we hire almost 50,000 new people a year. It's become a part of our ongoing. The training is ongoing. ongoing. And I think this is in many ways a proxy for the country. Nice. We have to be able to have uncomfortable conversations. Yep. We have to talk to people who are different than ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have to embrace the diversity of the nation. Preach. Starbucks is a diverse organization, and we want to do everything we can. It was a terrible moment for the company. It's not something that we're going to forget, and it's something that we learned a great deal from, and we're still learning as somebody who grew up in a very diverse background as a young boy in the projects. I didn't see color as a young boy. And I honestly don't see color now. Howard! You were so close! <laughs> so what I'm talking about is many of you seem to very clearly understand it's never a good idea to say I don't see color when you're talking to people about this. Number one, it's a lie. Number two, it's a lie. And number three, it's a lie. And it's completely insulting and dismissive. So as a black woman, if I start a conversation with you and we're getting into it, and you tell me you don't see color, you are insulting me. You are telling me that my experience doesn't matter. And you are lying. It's absurd. It means nothing. Don't ever say it again. Anyone ever, ever. The other response you can say to people who say, I don't see color, this is a good one. I got it from my friend. What do you do to stoplight? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to just dig in with these. And I think to some degree, I'll answer as many as I can. I may at certain times turn to you and see if you have a feeling or thought about it, because I, you know, I'm not the only knowledgeable source in this room. I know many of you have great knowledge in this area as well. So I'd love it to be a conversation for all of us. All right, here we go. What's the best way to embrace, celebrate race and culture without potentially being culturally appropriating? This is a great question, cultural appropriation. And, um, you know, there's the saying, the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation, right? So it's not a bad thing if you appreciate a piece of art and you have it featured in your home and um, there's a particular food you like and you uh, want to learn how to cook it and you immerse yourself in a particular world. It moves into appropriation when what happens sometimes, especially in music, is a lot of these artists will own it, take it as if it is their own, as if they invented it. And they will take what they like from the culture, but not bring along anybody from the culture to be a part of the process, 
to be featured in whatever way they're featuring the things that they appreciate, right? In who they're hiring. So I know there was at one point, I think it was Katy Perry who came under some criticism because she did a whole video where she was dressed as a geisha girl and people were critical. What I would want to know in that situation is, who was on her crew? Who did she hire to choreograph the video, right? Who did she credit in conversations and interviews about the video, right? So that if she's in front of it, people are going to attribute what they like about it with her. And what she'll need to do then is step aside and feature the people who she learned it from, right? So that's the difference. How do you help white people see and understand their automatic privilege without promoting defensiveness? Well, <laughs> I certainly don't promote defensiveness. I also don't have a lot of patience for defensiveness. So I will share with you that as a black woman who's been in this conversation for a while, if I'm in relation with a white person who wants to be defensive, I will give that relationship one or two opportunities to grow, and then if they can't get on board, I'll leave them on the side of the road. And what I mean by that is, the revolution is moving on without you. And there's no time to nurture and to coddle and to explain over and over and over again. You have to be want, you have to be, want to be a part of the revolution. And if you don't, that's fine. Godspeed but I don't have time. I will, like I said, create the opportunity for those one or two back and forth. It's what I do on Facebook. So I'll get on a thread, I'll share my point of view, I'll be open to one or two questions about it or defenses, but if I, after that point, feel as if the person is still staying in defense, I stop and I move on because there's no time. And I don't need a fat army, I need a sleek army. <laughs> How do you start the conversation of including people who look different than you? You know, you, it's about how you live your life. Where are your kids in school? What does your church demographic look like? What do you do socially, right? And it's about being in that world naturally and then the conversations come naturally as well, right? So again, it's the sort of thing, you can't just like walk up to the water cooler and be like, racism, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> that won't do. But if your world reflects a world that they know as well, you're gonna have access. We have time for one more question, anything? You guys, oh yes. So the industry I'm in is um, licensed and doctorate um, in healthcare. Um, there, the schools are not representative of anything other than white for the most part. So I have a lot of professionals who work in clinics who don't represent what those clinics look like. So do you have any suggestions about resources and things like that to help in those types of situations? To diversify, do you mean? Um, I don't have a choice for diversification because the schools are not, they're, they're a doctorate. So there are no 
there's very little um, minorities in this field. Right. <laughs> in fact, you could probably say two out of 200. Um, so I'm more worried about how my professionals interact with people within the clinics um, when they, we don't represent it as an organization. That's a great question. I mean, I think it, it brings up two factors, which is like, if at this level we're not seeing diversity, what are we doing at this level, right? So that we have to trickle up, and if we know it to be the issue, hopefully there's stuff in place that's starting to create opportunity and how creative you need to be to create those opportunities, engaging in communities that you might not normally engage in, historically black colleges, bringing your organization there, letting them know about opportunities, whatever it might be. And at the higher level, quite honestly, my gut reaction to that is a comprehensive DNI program. Because it's not something you can just put in a memo. By the way, be inclusive. And it particularly if we're operating at this level and it's already been filtered through that there isn't a lot of diversity, then it is needed and it's important and it affects the bottom line because if it isn't addressed, you're gonna get attrition and you're gonna lose, right? So yeah, I would say bring in the, the fleet experts, bring in common. <laughs> I think that's how we should end today. When in doubt, bring in common. Thank you so much, you guys.